Joy to the World. It's one of the most famous Christmas hymns in the world, and it starts like this. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Right? This is really, as we think about the meta-narrative of Scripture, that means the beginning to the end, this is really the message of hope that we are looking forward to, that the corruption of humanity in Genesis 3 then takes us on a redemptive journey throughout the whole Bible and throughout whole human history as God is now going to take what we have corrupted and He's going to renew it and He's going to bring it all underneath His kingdom and His reign. I mean, you even hear those Christmas uh, uh, verses that are really prophecies from Isaiah, and it says the government will rest on his shoulders. And there's nothing that really uh, hits it on the head clearer than that, that we see that we have a, a problem with government, don't we? And I don't just mean the government in America, I mean the world government. That this, this idea that there are people who uh, are making decisions around the world and who even in a corrupt world in society that we understand God has sovereignly placed all of our leaders in the places they have. That is all, if we think about that meta narrative of world history, coming to a point of culmination where Christ is going to come and the government is going to rest on his shoulders. That is the whole story of Scripture is how we are going to see Christ come and see that the world government... And all of the law, all of that's fulfilled in Christ, and he's going to come rule on the throne of David here on earth. So that's really the, the meta narrative of Scripture. If you never opened it, there it is. I mean, that's the picture of what we see. And this hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let the earth receive her king, is really just the echo of Scripture itself. As a matter of fact, as we look in the Gospel of John this morning, John's Gospel is proving that exact point. Like That's why John wrote his Gospel, so that those who would read it would understand this fact that Christ is coming and the government is going to rest on his shoulders. And the first time that he came, he came to deal with sin, which is why he died on to take our place in death. And he has come to impute on us his righteousness that we would then give him our sin. But he's coming back a second time, not to deal with sin, but to come rule and reign as the head of the government of the universe. I mean, that's really the picture that we see in Scripture and exactly what John is pointing to. So what I'd love for you to do before we open up to John chapter 1, I would love to do something and help you understand, at least in John's word, why in the world he even penned the gospel. And so if you would, turn to John 20. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 20, which is at the back of that gospel, what I would love to help you with is to tell you the whole reason why John said, here, here's why I wrote this. Isn't it wonderful to know why people do things? Like the, answer, the question why is such a good question. And here, for the rest of your life, I hope, starting now, if you haven't known this, I'm about to show you John's exact rationale of why he wrote this whole entire gospel that you and I know as the gospel of John. So there in John 20, we're going to look at verse 30 and 31. And here's what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That is really important. If you even think about that, is John saying, listen, the point of the gospel and the point of Jesus aren't 
the miracles. They aren't the signs. He's like, as a matter of fact, there are so many things that Jesus did that I am not putting in this book. Not because they weren't important, not because they weren't significant, because they're not the point. He's saying the point is found here in verse 31. But the ones that are written, but these that are written, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, maybe news to you, maybe not, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Did you know that? Christ is not a last name, but a title. And Christ is really the Greek form because, you know, the New Testament written in Greek, the Old Testament written in Hebrew. So the history of the Jews is in Hebrew. Uh, And then as the Roman Empire took over the known world at the time, the common language became Greek. And so that's why you have even the differentiation of the Old Testament and New Testament in two different languages. And so we have in the Greek a a Hebrew word that was translated into the Greek, and it's Christ. And that Hebrew word is the word Messiah. And Messiah meant that he is the anointed one, that he was the, the chosen one, okay? And if you were either maybe an informed Christian or if you were a Jew throughout history, particularly in the B.C. time or even in the first few centuries A.D., uh, you would recognize that the word Messiah was often linked to the King David, okay? And so when we say things like Messiah, even as we look at them in Scripture, that ought to immediately be linked to the Davidic line. And so what John is saying is, I wrote these things that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the son of David, and David was the king. And so for us, and we see this prophesied all throughout Scripture, and even as we read into the New Testament, into Revelation, that God has promised David an eternal kingship, right? We, we see, call this the Davidic covenant, and we've talked about that here at church many times. But that's the promise that we're pointing at. And the fact that his name is Christ, his title is Christ, points to him as being the fulfillment of God's promise to David to give him an eternal king that is sitting on the throne. And so, all that being said, when we look at what John was doing here, he's saying, here's the point of the entire gospel of John. Jesus came in the form of humanity to take on the sins of humanity and to take on the throne of his father, David, to rule and to reign and bring all of the corrupt world underneath his government to redeem it and to make all the bad things good and make all the wrong things right. There's the story of Scripture and what John is pointing us to right there in verses 30 and 31. So that's the end, right? We're at the beginning. So if you would, turn to John 1, verse 1. This is known, at least these first 18 verses, is known as the prologue, right? Which the prologue is just an introductory of the rest of the book. So I gave you the end of it, what the whole thing's about. Now I want to give you the beginning of it because a prologue is important because it sets up the rest of the narrative. I mean, you've read prologues in other books and literary works. They're important because although that some of the story will make sense if you don't read it, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you do understand the prologue, that word at the beginning that helps set up what the entire storyline is about. And you read it. Chris came up here and read it earlier as you were standing following along. The idea that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? We understand, even as uh, John is writing, that he means for us, when we think about the Word, to understand that to be 
Jesus, to understand that to be Christ. And we'll talk about all the reasons why that is the truth of that passage. Uh, But what we must come to understand fundamentally, most of the world doesn't believe John 1, 1 through 5, do they? At least they don't take it at face value. I mean, this includes a lot of the uh, Christian cult groups, you know, like your Unitarians. We have a Unitarian church, as a we. There is a Unitarian church up the road here that doesn't believe in the full deity of Christ, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Unitarians don't believe that the Word, that Christ was fully God. And you don't have to go very far down the road. You go to a Mormon ward just a little bit further north of there, and you're going to also have them in their translations, along with the Jehovah's Witnesses, will put an article there in front of that word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was a God. Okay. So there's a battle going on in the world when it comes to the identity of Jesus. And this is not Christianity 402 or advanced Christianity. This is fundamental Christianity 101, right? 101, if Jesus can save me, his identity must be sufficient for my salvation. And if he's just like me and you, guess what he's not sufficient for? Salvation. Because at best, if he gets it right, he can save himself. But he can't save me if he is not who he says he is. The only way he's sufficient for my sin and your sin and everyone else's sin is if he is who he says he is. And if he's God, he's sufficient for me and my sin in you, in your sin. And so we see, and you don't even have to go to the you know, cult groups in our community. You can probably just walk outside, go next door, knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, what do you believe about John 1, 1 through 5? Oh, you don't know it? It says that in the beginning, Jesus was there and he was with God. And as a matter of fact, he was God. What do you think about that? You're going to find that it isn't just the cult groups in our society, that it's your neighbors. And I, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, would wager to bet that there's people in this room who one or two things either doesn't affirm the divine identity of Christ or is pretty indifferent about it altogether, right? What does it matter if if I believe Jesus is God if I believe that he came and died for my sins? Well, it means everything to do with your salvation, Because if Jesus isn't God and you don't affirm him as God, he isn't sufficient for your salvation. And he could no more save you from your sins as he could save me from my sins. He can only save you from his sins if he is who he says he is. And he did what he said he did. And so, therefore, what we got to recognize this morning as we open up to John 1, 1 through 5, is this is just Christianity 101. I mean, this is just Bible 101, introductory Christianity that we have to affirm as a church, that you have to affirm as an individual if we're going to understand who Jesus is and grasp his mission here, which is the preaching point. If You can look at it on the screen or there in your notes, that this whole text is about this, that it's imperative for us to grasp Jesus' divine identity and his agency, that is his creative work, in creation. It's essential for us to grasp that if we want to understand the magnitude of his incarnational mission to save his creation. Simply, simple terms this. you got to know who he is. you got to know what he did. you got to know why in the world that he came and took on flesh like you and me. If you don't understand those things, you don't understand the gospel 101. And we want to make sure that we understand gospel 101 here at Compass Bible Church. So, if you haven't, turn with me to John 1.1. If you're there... Go ahead and put your eyeballs on the first verse in the Gospel of John, verse 1. Here it says that in the beginning, John starts his Gospel with in the beginning. These are the same exact words as 
Genesis 1.1. I mean, even the Bible of Jesus' day, we're not saying there are different Bibles, but we're saying the translation, like ours is in English, you notice, but that is not how the original transcripts of, of the Bible were written. They were written in their original language. Well, the main language of that day was Greek, like we said earlier. They had a book called the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And here's what's really, really important about that. The same first three words in Genesis 1-1, the same words, the same Greek words, John takes them and puts them at the beginning of his gospel, and he says, if you want to know who Jesus is, you can't start right here in 40 AD. You can't start in the first century. If you want to know who Jesus is, you got to go back. RK, that's what that word beginning means, RK. You know, archaic, it means ancient. you got to go back to the beginning of time, not just the beginning of the life of Christ, to the beginning of the universe. And he says, and in that time, in the beginning, was the Word. John states in no uncertain terms that the Word, that Jesus was there in the beginning. He was active in creation along with God the Father and along with God the Spirit. God the Son was there as an active agent in creating the universe. And then he continues to say, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, it's important for you and me to wrap our minds. I know it's hard, and I'm not saying you're ever going to fully be able to wrap your mind around the truth found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you fully can't wrap your mind around the nature of the triune Godhead, but it is paramount and pivotal for us to start understanding and thinking about the fact that Jesus was there in the beginning with the Father and the Spirit. Because it's paramount if you're going to think rightly about who Jesus is in his incarnation. Not a big deal, okay, I'm not saying not a wonderful miracle, not a big deal that a baby was born, right? Happens all the time. I mean, there's like hundreds of them born in the hospital. There's hundreds of them born in our church every other day, it seems like. (laughs) Right? Wonderful, right? Wonderful doesn't really change history, right? The difference here isn't that a baby was born, right? The truth here is the fact that that baby in the cradle is God himself, who was an active agent in creation. But, and it wasn't just that it was God was active in crea- creation. It's that this incarnate child is fully God. He was there with God, the Father, in the beginning, and he was God. And that gives you a kind of awe that perhaps maybe you don't think about when you look and think about Christmas. Often we think it the opposite way. We think Jesus first as a human, and then maybe we may venture off into thinking that he's some kind of divine. The problem is that's anachronistic. It's, it's backwards. It's out of order. When you think about Jesus, it always, 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 just like John's saying, has to go back to the beginning. You ought never to think about Jesus without first going all the way back to the beginning. And I don't even mean just the creation of the world. I'm talking about the eternality of Christ, that he was pre-existing with the Father before creation. Jesus isn't the first of the created beings, as the Mormons would want you to believe. Jesus was pre-existing with the Father in eternity past. Now, think about that. Now, now he, he came to earth, was born as a baby. 
That's mind-blowing, isn't it? That's the right way to think about Christ in his divinity and in his incarnation. We've got to wrap our minds around that because I think we will begin thinking rightly about Christmas and rightly about Jesus when we think about him in that perspective. Two verses I think are going to help you, uh, both by the same writer, John, here. Uh, the first scripture I want you to jot down is John 1, 14. John 1, 14. It's a verse that we'll actually look at in a couple of weeks, but it'll be helpful for you uh, to uh, be introduced to it right this second. John 1, 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So even that, if you're one of those people that object, I don't think the Word, I don't think when he says Word, he means Jesus. Okay, well, the whole Gospel of John is about Jesus. The whole Gospel of John is about how God came to us. The whole Gospel of John is about the incarnation of God and his mission to save people from their sins. And here we have John saying, The Word put on flesh. And tabernacled is actually the word there, tabernacled among us. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. But the fact that just like God the Father tabernacled and it, through, the, through the Spirit, right? tabernacled there in the Old Testament in what we would call a tabernacle, Jesus came and tabernacled among his people in his incarnation. So in case we want to object to this idea that the word means Jesus, continue building a case to the fact that when we say word, we mean Jesus. When John says word, he means Jesus. And we have seen his glory, verse 14 says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So he's proceeding from the Father to us, full of grace and full of truth. One more verse you can jot down. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. 1 John 1, 2. The life, we're talking about Christ, was made manifest. So he appeared. He came and appeared before us tangibly, empirically. And we have seen that life. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, the Son was co-eternal, pre-existing with the Father, and now he has come and been made manifest to you and I. So therefore, we have seen the glory of the Father through the Son. And so for you and me, when we think about Jesus, we have to think, and I mean think, because it does take a think. You have to put a think on it real quick. Put your thinking cap on. And we had to be in thinking, what a marvelous mystery that we have he who is in the beginning with God, who is God, came in the form of helpless humanity, infancy, infantile, right? We're talking about the most humbling, humiliating state you could be in, and it is that thing in which cannot do anything for itself and is completely dependent on that which he created. Think about that. This is the profundity of the incarnation. Simply that God became man without losing his divine nature. I mean, again, it, this isn't Hercules. This isn't half God, half man stuff here. We're not talking about Greek mythology. We're talking about biblical Christianity. We're talking about historical events. I mean, we're talking about fully God, fully man. He has not diminished any of his divinity and has not diminished any of the humanity that he was clothed in. He was fully God, fully man. Christianity 101. And that's the miracle of Christmas. And his name is Jesus. So I want you to do this. Point number one. You need to do this. If we're going to follow Christ, you need to unequivocally affirm the divine identity of Jesus. 
unequivocally affirm the divine identity of Christ. We can't see the divinity of Christ as a side issue in Christianity. We can't say, well, I know that it'd be great for me to also believe that, but I just, I, I'm fine with believing that he came to save me. I'm just not fine with believing that he came uh, and was fully God. Well, the problem is the only one who could save you is God. You read the rest of the Bible. It is always an appeal to God to save. It's always God acting in the place of man to save man. And so there is no way for us to receive any kind of uh, salvation from God. No, there is no way for the wrath of God to be fulfilled on our behalf apart from God coming down and doing it on his own, which is the wonderful grace and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It's not legalism, it's the grace of Christ, that it is offered to us freely through Christ. Okay, maybe you're one of those people, maybe you're just a real doubter, right? And you're like, I still don't think that that's what that word means. What word? Word, okay? I want to know for sure if that's what John was meaning. Well, here's what I want you to do. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, the end of, the end of that blessed apocalyptic literature of prophecy that we can look forward to. And here what we see is the picture of Christ as he's coming back down with the heavenly host uh, ready to come and, and rule and reign for the millennium. So we see that. That's a picture of happening here, that, that Christ is coming to rule and to reign. And uh, this is how that unfolds, starting there in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That just means crowns. So he's got many crowns on his head, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, even pause there. If you think about the, the rest of Scripture and interpreting Scripture with Scripture, uh, you don't have to have an imagination where you believe there is an actual sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ as he's coming down from the clouds of the heavens. Instead, all you have to do is think about verses like Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God is active, sharp, living, sharper than a two-edged sword. So even here, right, this is why you got to understand Scripture, because even when we have in verse 15 of Revelation 19, we have this sharp sword coming from the mouth of Jesus, what John is saying is the Word of God is going to come out and it will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if you want just a really detailed description on who John is talking about in the incarnation of Christ, you can just write there in the margins. You need to read... Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and it'll tell you exactly who John is talking about. He's talking about the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is coming back again with his armies, and he's going to come rule the world with the word of God. The same way the world was created through the word of God is the same way God is going to come back through the power of Christ incarnate, right? 
and he's going to come and he's going to speak and the nations will melt and God will rule and God will reign in Christ on the throne of David. When you think about Jesus, I know, again, it's a thinking thing for a moment. you got to think, not baby, first and foremost. You must think God of the universe. Equal with the Father, distinct from the Father, but one with the Father. And you're like, that's, that's, that sounds, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, okay, mystery of the gospel. Welcome, Christianity 101. The triune nature of God that we see revealed in Scripture and we affirm it, and we marvel. And this is, again, why we can marvel at the incarnation of Christ, because the incarnation of Christ says the second person of the triune Godhead came down and became man without forfeiting his deity and came and lived life in a place in a way that we could not. Sinless, perfect, perfect sacrifice, sinless. So you and I, as sinful as we are, could receive a propitiation, that is the wrath of God would be poured out on Christ and not on us, and it would be fully satisfied in Christ so that we would not receive the wrath of God, but we receive the blessing of inheritance as children of God. There's the profoundness of thinking rightly about Jesus during Christmas brings you to a place of not just nostalgia of the gifts you got when you were 12 years old, but of that reality of the blessedness of the hope that we have in Christ, that we no longer have the wrath of God remaining on us because God is pleased with us, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ with whom he is well pleased. See, affirming Jesus' identity, it's crucial. And it's crucial because we need to grasp as we continue thinking about this uh, prologue, particularly in verse 3, of how John talks about the words part in creation. And so look at verse 3 with me. John 1, there in verse 3. John says, All things were made through him. So Paul, in Colossians 1.16, he's speaking of Jesus as well. And he says, For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So you can confidently, Christianity 101, confidently can say everything. Everything in the universe owes its molecular, physical, and spiritual being to God and Christ who created everything. Every molecule, every fiber of your being, every spiritual reality in the heavenly places, whether thrones and dominions or rules and authorities, all of them were created through him, and don't miss that last part, and for him. You ever wondered what you're doing here? You can look no further. Colossians 1.16 says, you were created through Christ for Christ. You ever wondered what the meaning of your life was? The meaning of your life is found in what it means to be created by Christ for Christ. You want to know what it means for you as a Christian? What does this life mean? This life means significant amounts of things when you consider who you are in Christ. There is purpose, there is meaning in your life, not because you cause meaning to happen, not because you find some kind of abstract, um, subjective meaning in life, but there is objective meaning in you because you were made in the image of God and you were made through Christ for Christ. So it's impossible for creation to find meaning outside of its creator. 
You, don't, you can't know who you are if you don't know who Christ is, Christianity 101. And if you're going to know who you are and what you're doing here, you must first get to know the one who created you. So therefore, without him, there was nothing that was made that was made. Everything that we see, everything that was made was made through Christ. You see, the Son, that is the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus, was the Father's creative agent in creation. Right? So even when you, I haven't said it yet, but even if you look at Genesis 1, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and formless, and the Spirit of God, that's the third person of the triune Godhead, was hovering over the waters. Right? And then God said, do you see that? Said, that's a word, let there be light. And through the Father's creative agency in Christ, all things were created. And it's wonderful as you look at the New Testament and you see the New Testament progressively, or the New Testament progressively revealing things that were previously in part hidden in the Old Testament. And as you read and you say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you go back to the Genesis 1 and you say, show me. And it says, and God spoke. And you thought, look at that. God progressively revealing himself to us, and that triune mystery becomes a little bit more visible, although in so many ways, a dim, a, a, a dim mirror, a dim light, you can't see the whole thing. We're going to see the glory of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity, but you can't miss the fact that he was there in the beginning, and he was the creative agent in creation. Hebrews 1, verse 2. You can jot that down. Hebrews 1, verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. There it is, plainly stated, that through Christ, God created the whole world. We have the master architect, as we think about this first advent, the coming of Christ. We have the master architect of the universe in a manger. You see, when you start thinking about it that way, you start thinking, wow, what an awesome, what an awe-inspiring picture of God becoming manifest to us in the baby in the manger. I want you to do this, point number two. You need to attribute the universe's existence to the baby in the manger. You need to attribute the universe's existence to the baby in the manger in the manger. And again, it's just reorienting yourself. You go through Hobby Lobby, right? You're going through Walmart, you're going through Target, and you see, do they even have nativities at Target? That's another conversation for later. Okay. <laughs> you look at those nativities, and every time you look at one of those things, you say, master architect of the universe, incarnate to save me, right? That. That's a gospel opportunity, isn't it? Every time you walk down those, down those aisles, you talk to somebody and say, hey, you know what that, you know what that is? They're like, yeah, it's a nativity. That is God incarnate, creator of the universe. Your very fiber and your being is owed to that baby in the manger. That's a gospel opportunity, isn't it? But you've got to think rightly about that baby in the manger. You've got to attribute the world's, the universe's existence to that baby in the manger. One more verse, Galatians 4. Galatians 4 Four through five. I want you to flip there, actually, because there's there's a there's a phrase I want you to underline uh, that is uh, quite a significant uh, part of the biblical narrative. So Galatians four in the New Testament, there, Paul's letters to the churches. Galatians four, four through five. 
If you're there, say amen. amen. If you're not there, say help. <laughs> Somebody help them. Okay. There in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it says in starting in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, that is, as God's will and sovereign plan was ready in, as he saw it, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Now, that's, that's the phrase. If you're there, I want you to underline that. That is going to be so important for your faith that you, you may not even realize it yet. That is such an important phrase. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So much to unpack there, but just a couple of observations. When, when the fullness of time come, when God's plan was revealed, he sent Christ, born of a woman. Now remember that. I'm going to bring that up momentarily. Born under the law. That is the moral law of God, and even in the, the, the context of, of Israel, born even under the Mosaic law in all of its ceremonial laws and all of its civil laws and all of its moral laws. But ultimately, as we've talked about here at our church, the civil laws uh, and the uh, sacrificial laws were all tied to the moral laws. That's why you have the sacrificial system, because uh, people broke moral law. Therefore, there was sacrifice necessary because of their broking, breaking of the moral law. So there were sacrifices. And even the civil laws, even the civil laws that we have today, are often in place, not because you do something really good, right? I mean, wouldn't that be nice? You did something really good, and uh, the, the, the city and the government said they have to do something for you. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not how the civil laws work, is it? It's actually meant to uh, punish those and give justice to those who break the moral law, okay? And so in the same way, we have Christ who was born under that law. This is important when you think about the mission of Jesus. He did not come as God above the law. He did not come as, well, he had it easy because he was God and he was just above the law the whole time, right? He makes the law, so he's above the law. No, no, he's born under that law, under the weight of that which all humanity rests upon, rests upon him in full humanity as it was. And he was born under the law so that he would redeem those who are under the law. He became a sufficient substitute for you and I. Because the very thing that you and I can't do as we look at the Ten Commandments, as we even look at many of our relationships that are broken in various degrees because we simply cannot keep the moral law of God, Christ has come as a substitute on our behalf to redeem those who under the law could not stand underneath the awesome weight of the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so that's important, even in the first century, even in some way, depending on how your uh, inheritance is and how, if you have anything to offer your children, how you set all that up. But particularly in the first century, uh, being a firstborn son, very important. Because all of the inheritance, or at least a majority of the inheritance, goes to the firstborn son. And so what's important about being adopted into this family is somehow you're getting the stewardship, the blessing, the inheritance of a firstborn son when you were never part of the family to belong to begin with. You, the Christian, those who've turned from their sins, placed your trust in the Christ, would be adopted into this family as sons. She said, not just adopted in this family as a bunkmate, adopted in this family as a basement dweller. You are adopted into this family as a son. That means all those things which were Christ's, 
which were not yours. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the promises of the covenants, through the inheritance that was there. You were complete aliens of that. And you were brought into that as an adopted son. That which you did not deserve, you had zero ability to obtain or to grasp and no legal standing to obtain. And it was given to you in spite of you. Because you were adopted because Christ came to redeem, to purchase you, which is what that means, to redeem. Go redeem that. Go purchase that. Go bring that to yourself. So I want you to find some amazement in this one fact. Find amazement in the fact that the one who created you became like you to save you. Most of us aren't even willing to go out of our way to help somebody in need, and that's that's a plain, sad reality that we find in our culture. And I hope I find less so in our church. As a matter of fact, I know that our church helps those in need. I, I recognize that. But often, how painstaking is it for you to say no to yourself, to say yes to somebody else? And then to imagine Christ coming and putting on humanity, to be born under the law, to take on all of the burdens and the sickness and the pain of what it means to be human, to feel every bit of the pain that crucifixion could put on a person, and he would come to do that to purchase you, to be like you, to take a punishment that he did not deserve, that you deserved, so that you would not have to, so you could be adopted into God's family and to receive the blessings of the Father. Hmm. Come on, church. What we see when we look at the manger is we see majesty in that manger, right? We see creator in a cradle. And you got to think about those things. I mean, that's what we need to think about when we think about the incarnation of Christ. But it does beg the question that we've briefly answered, but John goes in depth in, in verses 4 and 5. Why? Why is the incarnation so important? Verse 4 and 5 in John 1. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, this is important. As you're reading through the Gospel of John, you often hear phrases like this. I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me and believes in me will not walk in darkness. Right? I am the truth. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. You notice what he doesn't say. I'm a way. I'm a light. I'm a truth. Okay, this is fundamental to answering the why question now, isn't it? You look at here, it says, in him was life. And so if I look at the rest of John, and I understand, I'm not just talking about a life. It's the life. If we're going to have life, whatever that is, the substance, substance of life in which God wants his creation to have, I can only have it through the life. There is no a life. I can't find it through a life. I've got to find it through the life. And so it was so important for Christ to come incarnate in humanity because in him was the life. And it was that life was the light of men. That's the problem with culture and society, isn't it? Darkness. Isn't that the problem? Darkness. You look around, darkness everywhere. Roll, you know, open up your phone. Don't do it right now, please. But uh, open up on the news. What do you see? Darkness. Open up your social media. All shades of darkness. Right? Look at your own life. So much darkness there in, in various areas. I mean, the problem as old as time itself is darkness. And so we see the answer to this, the why. Because it was the life. And it was the life that has the light. Again, you see that in verse 4. He's the light of men. Not a light. He's the light. So whatever it would mean to live 
And whatever it would mean to step out of darkness and out of the despair of society and culture, and whatever it means to get out of the kingdom of darkness is found in the life and the light of men. So it was for men. It was for us, anthropoi, which means men and women, right? Us. For us. It was for all of us. And then here's the good news of verse, of verse 5. Right? Verse 4 tells us it ain't a life, it ain't a light, it's the life and the life, and it's for humanity. Because here's the good news about this light and this life. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, don't think for a moment that John has left Genesis 1. He still has not left Genesis 1. He is still speaking in light of the motifs and the history wrapped up in Genesis 1. I mean, just think about Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness was over the face of the deep. But that's not a, that's not a picture of life. And that is not a picture of light in the way that God wanted his creation to look. And so we have this darkness. And even that word, uh, without form and void, the only places it's found, it's found twice in Scripture. And it's always in the midst of chaos and calamity. And so even as you think about the picture of the world as it was being created, it was a pretty inhospitable place. And it was dark, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, and God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. You see, even in this scripture, John is going back to Genesis to show you the effect of the work of Christ. When Christ steps in, light. The darkness cannot overcome it, which is exactly what you read here. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that same trust that we have that every single day, light is going to dawn, the darkness is going to fade. Every time you walk into a dark room and you flip the light on, you know for a fact that that light is going to shed itself on the darkness, and darkness is going to dissipate, and light is going to come through victorious. That's the truth of what we have in the incarnation of Christ. Three Ps, the problem, the promise, and the purpose. I'll give them to you. I'll repeat them in a moment. So we want to think about the problem of light, the problem of darkness. You have the first P, which is the problem, right? Darkness entered the world through rebellion against God, right? I mean, that's what we see as we read through Genesis 1 through 3, particularly. We have God in Genesis 2 going to, the, going to Adam, which, you know, Adam in Hebrew means man, Adam, Adam is man in Hebrew. He goes to man, he goes to Adam, and he says, okay, I'm giving you this garden, all this creation. I've given it to you. Go rule and subdue it. And as you go rule and subdue it, all these plants, all these trees, all these fruit things are yours. All these animals are yours to care for and to tend and to shepherd. All of this creation, yours to care for under my government, remember? Only of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Darkness. And we know what happens in Genesis 3, don't we? Exactly what happens. Adam and Eve are over there. Eve takes the fruit, tempted by the serpent, who is Satan. You need to remember that. That's part of the promise that we have in Genesis 3 that shows us how Christ is going to conquer Satan, is that reality that they ate, they took of the fruit, and as the serpent said, surely you will not die, you will just be made like God, knowing good from evil. Well, that was only a half lie, right? 
Because they did. They were like God in a way of knowing good from evil. The problem is, is they now don't have the capacity to do good, but only to do evil. So before, they did not have the capacity to do evil because God had shielded them from that. But even in the freedom of their own conscience and will to take upon that fruit and to eat it against obedience to God, darkness had come upon the world. And don't think this is just a fruit-eating contest, guys. It's not a fruit-eating contest. It's open rebellion against God. God said, don't do this. They did this, tempted by Satan and their own desire to be like God. So don't, don't, don't again, don't be elevating man like they didn't do nothing wrong. They wanted to be like God. Same problem we've seen throughout all creation. Tower of Babel, same thing. Adam and Eve, same thing. Satan, cast out of heaven, why? Same thing. You today, if you don't trust in Christ, why? You do not want to give up autonomy for your own life because you want to be the king of your own life. The same sin that we see in the garden, the same sin that we see in society today. The problem is darkness, isn't it? There is no light. Your life apart from Christ has no light. You will surely die in darkness. Right? That's the consequence of sin. You remember John 3.16? You know John 3.16. Did you know John 3.19? Right after that. Right after that. Here's what John 3.19 says. This is the judgment. This is the judgment. right? You're like, I didn't know John 3 had anything about judgment. This is what 3.19 says. The judgment. Here's the judgment of God on creation. The light has come into the world. Who's that? Christ. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The condemnation and judgment of God upon creation is that the light had come and they rejected the light in favor of darkness and sin, in, faithful of their, in favor of their own pleasure and of their own sin. They chose darkness instead of the life who was the light of men. Here's a promise. That's the problem, isn't it? Here's the promise. God promised even at the beginning, Genesis 3, 15, that God's going to raise up a savior. It's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. And this is such a beautiful, subtle, although not so subtle if you lived in that culture and understood it, but even in our church, churches, in our society, in our culture, in our time, not such a doctrine that is taught as clearly as I believe it should be. And it is this reality that we call the proto-evangelium there in Genesis 3.15, Right? When Satan there as the serpent, manifested as a serpent, and God is uh, ca- uh, pronouncing curses on him. And this is the curse of God onto Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Right? When you read that, we just think, yeah, most women are scared of snakes. But that's not what that means. Right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Okay, you do any medical professionals in here? All right. If I bruise my heel, do I immediately need to call 911? No, okay. Because at the end of the day, rub some dirt on it, I'm probably going to make it, right? If I bruise my head, should I call 911? Probably, because that ain't going to end too well, right? This is the promise of God to creation and to Satan that I'm going to put in between, between you and humanity and between your offspring and her offspring. Notice that. She didn't, he, God did not say between your offspring, talking about Satan, and Adam's offspring. Did you notice that? It was the seed of the woman that God had made this promise. Very important. Because sin had entered, entered the world through one man named Adam, and salvation came through one man called Christ. Okay? So you, you're following me, right? The seed of the woman 
Galatians 4, 4 through 5, that I told you to hang on to and underline. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, seed of the woman, born of the woman. Jesus was not some kind of alternate option of salvation where he was on the sideline and God the Father said, all right, son, get in there. All right, figure it out. We're in the fourth quarter, two minutes left. It was not a plan after the fact. It has been the plan since the beginning of time that Christ would come, born of the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, which again, if people who don't want to affirm the virgin birth, here's the problem with not affirming the virgin birth. You completely disrupt all of the narrative of Scripture that says it will be a seed of the woman. It won't be seed of the man in which sin entered the world. So virgin birth, very important, Christianity 101. Virgin birth proves seed of the woman, and seed of the woman proves son of God who came to save the world from sin. Very important. Her offspring will bruise the head of Satan, right, which is a mortal blow. It is a blow in which that will cause the loss of life. Satan, he's going to be thrown, as we read the end of Revelation, into the fiery lake, into the pit. And Christ will have his heel bruised, right, which we see, we celebrate every Easter, that he was crucified for our sin, put on a cross, and he died a death that we deserved, was put into the tomb, and three days later, resurrected. He did not die, or he died, but he was raised, bruise of the heel, that which is painful but will not lead to death everlasting. And he was resurrected to prove to us that God has indeed bruised the head of Satan. And although humanity has the consequence of sin brought on by rebellion of humanity and the schemes of Satan, it does not end there. It will be redeemed, and it will be renewed, and it will all happen at the resurrection of the saints and the coming of Christ. Come on. Somebody say amen to that? Amen. All right, come on. All right, the purpose. All right, you had the problem, the promise, and here's the purpose. Jesus came incarnate as the life and the light to deal with the darkness, okay? The darkness. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. It says this, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Right? There's, there's a blanket promise to everybody on planet Earth throughout history. We're all going to die. If you didn't know that, welcome to Compass. Right? You are going to die. Okay? <laughs> Some of you are going to die soon. Okay? Some of you are going to die later on down the road. Some of you are going to die terrible deaths, and others of you are probably may die in your sleep. Think about that. We're all going to die. And then after death comes judgment. And so enter Christ. Here's the why of Christ. Christ, so in verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that is in his first advent and his first coming, he came to deal with sin. That's his whole first coming. He came to put himself in humanity, to veil him into flesh of humanity and to live a life under the law as you and I except for perfect and spotless to be the perfect substitute for our sin on our behalf. Therefore, he took on the sin, our sin on the cross, died the death that we deserved that he did not, and that was the reason for his first coming. And then he died and was raised three days later. Now, he did that. That was his first coming. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly, eagerly waiting for him. He's coming again to rule in the reign where the government will be on his shoulders, and he's coming to give the final deliverance to his children. Now, that does also mean that there is judgment coming for those who are in the darkness, who are unregenerate, who are unredeemed, who are not justified. But 
you need to understand that the, the fact of the matter, the joy, the blessedness of the hope that we have, the blessed hope that Scripture calls the second coming of Christ, is to come and to save us who eagerly wait for him. Not to justify, but to give us final deliverance from the consequences of sin and of darkness. He's coming to bring us out of the final consequences of the fall of darkness in his second coming. So, I want you to do this, point number three. You need to look to Christ as the remedy to our world's dilemma. Look to Christ as the remedy to our world's dilemma. Interestingly enough, our problem isn't better civil government in the hands of man. Our solution isn't you know, going green. Right? Our, our solution isn't you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just doing better tomorrow. It's not the solution. Christ is the solution. He's the remedy to our world's problem. To think any less about your problems would be to think less about the incarnation of Christ. You ever thought about that? To think less about your problems is to think less about the incarnation of Christ. You ought to recognize that your real problem caused a real thing to happen, which is Christ to come incarnate on your behalf. And and Jesus says in John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. There's just a wonderful truth of the scriptures, isn't it? I have come so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness because I am the light. All right. I want you to think, in what ways is Christ the remedy to our world's dilemma? I want you to think three ways, and you can sum them up in the Christian language, doctrinal language of justification, sanctification, and glorification. You don't have to know what all those mean. I'll tell you briefly, okay? Because I want you to realize many people think the remedy to our problem is just the gospel of salvation. And one of the problems with that is if we do not preach what the whole gospel does to the whole person— uh, church becomes the place where people get saved and the place where people do nothing else. The problem with that is that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that you would be justified, that the part one is that you'd be justified. That means you'd be illegally and forensically deemed righteous before God. Legally, the gavel's down. You're righteous apart from you. It is an alien righteousness. It's been imputed upon you apart from you. You turn from your sin, you place your trust in Christ Jesus, and then therefore you are justified apart from yourself, a work of God. Now, the issue is if we just stop there, then we don't realize the work of the gospel in the life of the saint, in the life of the Christian. Because there's more to it, right? There's sanctification, right? Which is that lifelong process where God progressively conforms you to the image of Christ. I mean, there's a really wonderful thing here. Because here's the thing, you can be saved and there's still a lot of your life that needs to be sanctified. Anybody else? Amen? Amen. Okay, here's the problem. If you don't think Jesus solves that dilemma in your life, where's the hope of your marriage? Where is the hope of raising your kids in a home that reveres and honors the Lord? Where are you going to find the strength to do that? Where are you going to find the wisdom to do that? What's the hope of our church being a sending agency of sending people out in the community to stand for Christ, to be sending missionaries throughout the whole world, to be planting more churches. What's the power and hope if Christ isn't the answer to us becoming progressively more like him? If we're the answer to that, we have no hope. If Christ is the answer to that, we have all the hope in the world that as we wait for Christ to come get us, he's going to empower us to do what he has called us to as a church, as a family, and as an individual. It has everything to do with 
your whole life. The remedy to your problem is Christ always, all the time. Your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification. That's your last word, your glorification. That is, glorification is that final moment, which is, I just want to think about it for a minute. It's a glorious moment when God removes all sin from the believer at Christ's return, when the believer is resurrected into a glorified body with unfettered access to God in holiness and splendor. You want to talk about, you can talk about a day to wait for? When all the bad in your life is good, all the wrong is made right, right? all of the ailments are gone, and you're living perfect, unfettered access to God in utter splendor and holiness. And you know who accomplishes that for you? His name is Jesus. And you get access to that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about salvation. It's about conforming your life into the image of Christ here. And it's about waiting for that blessed hope of the return of Christ. And all of that is wound up in the baby in the manger. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for the privilege of opening up your word to such a profound passage that unapologetically declares the preexistent nature of the Son, co-eternal with you and with your Spirit, the active agent in creation, that we would trust in for our salvation, for even all of the struggles that we have, even in this life when it comes to our sin and our desire to follow you fully. We can trust in that same gospel of Christ that the Spirit that he has sealed us with is going to conform us and is going to empower us to walk in obedience. And it's going to empower us to live in a way that is good for our spouses and good for our children, ultimately because it's glorifying to you and it's good for your children. And God, ultimately, that reality of that glorification that you're going to come and the government's going to rest on your shoulders and you're going to redeem humanity. You're going to conform it all to the pleasure of your will. And you're going to, God, you're going to bring us into that perfect, sinless relationship with you that we look so much forward to in the future. But until then, we take this time to remember Christ and his incarnation and think of the profundity, the joy, and the bliss that comes from trusting in Christ. And all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.